Welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with KnowledgeHook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's show is a follow-up to our previous podcast with Michael Fullen. For those of you who may have missed it, Michael's podcast can be found on the KnowledgeHook Signature Leadership Series portal. Today's podcast features Mary Jean Gallagher. She's the co-author of their book, The Devil is in the Details, System Solutions for Equity, Excellence, and Student Well-Being. Mary Jean is a former assistant deputy minister with the Ontario Ministry of Education. I was fortunate to be leading a school district in Ontario when Mary Jean was at the helm of the teaching and learning branch. Her no-nonsense approach helped all of us to improve outcomes for students. Mary Jean uses this no-nonsense approach in their book, describing best practices for system solutions in education. Today's podcast will allow us to see the book from Mary Jean's unique perspective, that of a high-level practitioner attempting to scale putting research into practice. Mary Jean, it's a huge pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. It's a great pleasure for me to have the opportunity to chat as well. It's always great to be talking about education with uh, senior education leaders that want to be hearing from uh, experts and uh, people that are experienced by like yourself. We're going to be talking today, Mary Jean, about the uh, book that you co-wrote with Michael Fullen, uh, The Devil is in the Details, System Solutions for Equity, Excellence and Student Well-Being. And uh, thanks for writing that. It was a great read. Uh, always enjoy uh, reading the, the continuity of, of Michael's books and uh, really love when he has co-authors because you hear the voice of the co-author in that and uh, I certainly heard your voice often that uh, what I was interested in was that um, you know it takes it starts off with very much that systems approach that uh, I certainly found very helpful as a director of education myself and it evolves into the new era where we're speaking much more about not just systems thinking for learning but systems thinking for well-being and equity as well. How has how has your work changed? Well, a, a lot of this actually parallels the beginning steps, Jennifer, that you know we took in Ontario when we were working uh, with such success to improve uh, outcomes for students and to improve student learning across our system. Um, when the government put this process, put the Ontario reforms together, they talked about excellence and equity. It was raise the bar for all students and narrow the gap for those who were uh, facing challenges. And um, to be honest, I think teachers and school districts stepped into the equity place more quickly than they did the focus on excellence. And those two came along, but it became pretty clear um, to those of us who were leading it, that there was a missing element um, that, you know, our teachers were looking for ways to make learning more engaging for students and to find ways to keep students attached to schools. And, and we weren't centered on that at the beginning of it. One of the great joys of doing this kind of reform work, first in Ontario and now around the world, is that we have an opportunity to learn with the people that we work with. And that was certainly true in my leadership in the province of Ontario. You know how interactive our work between school districts and the ministry or between the ministry and teachers, like it was a, it was a partnership at all three levels of the system. And as I worked around the world, I kept learning from my clients out in the field. And one of the things that has always bothered me, when I was, when I was at the province working at the provincial level, we were working on literacy numeracy in the in the elementary grades, and then from grade seven on up, we were focusing on increasing the graduation rate in our schools. And I always felt that while we were doing that, <clears throat> there were really two groups of students that we were not serving well. One was the group of kids who dropped out before graduating, and those clearly those kids were uh, in situations where their futures were not nearly as bright as they should have been 
if we had figured out how to work with them differently. But the other group of students who were not well served were the students who graduated. And you would say to them, well, wow, congratulations, you've graduated from high school. What are you planning for next year? And they would look at you and say, I don't know. Hmm. And I, I sat there and thought, our school system is producing, and this is not an insignificant number of young people, um, our school system's producing young people who at the age of 18 have achieved something significant and are successful in completing high school, but they have no idea about who they are and what their passions are in terms of learning. They're not passionate about learning at all because you know, the longer they're in school, the less engaged they are. That to me seemed to be um, an, a really awful waste of talent that we needed if we were going to continue to improve what was happening around the world. So when you look at that, um, the notion that Michael and I advance in the book where excellence, equity, and student well-being are actually inextricably linked with each other um, absolutely drives someone who thinks about kids and what they need and where we want them to go. Um, it, it drives you into all three of those spaces. I don't believe you can have a really good, successful school or school system without uh, deeply addressing all three of those. I think that's what uh, we did. A, you know, we did a good job for a decade, really looking closely at learning and looking very specifically in literacy, at literacy and numeracy and, you know, kind of across the curriculum. And when we saw teachers that really uh, connected well with students, it was in a deeper learning stance. It was, it was um, not surface le level literacy, but really going into, you know, what did they know about themselves? How would they connect with the text that they were reading? How would that text and their experiences help them connect with the outside world? And when we began to think more formally about well-being, it was almost a natural link because that work had started almost intuitively that to really get into um, good literacy practices, you had to go deeper into the identity of the student and link, help them link to themselves, link to the text and link to the outside world. Absolutely. And it was, um, it was, was fascinating to me. I mean, I, as you know, my background is mathematics, not literacy. And I can remember as a, a leader in my school district in the 90s and early 2000s, listening to these big cultural debates between the uh, whole language people and the phonics people in literacy. And it was so clear to me as a mathematics instructor that students needed both. I mean, they need certain skills at certain times, but you can't just do one thing. Um, when I, you know, there's a, a comment in the book where, where I talk about how we teach our children sports, whether it's, um, at, whether it's footy in Australia or hockey in Canada or basketball, whatever sport you're talking about. When we start bringing our kids to the hockey rink, um, we don't expect them for the first eight years they're learning about hockey to do nothing other than drills and skating in circles, etc. I mean, how many of our kids would be bored to tears about that? And, and leave the sport entirely if they didn't have an opportunity in every practice at some point to actually experience the joy of the game, to be able to skate down the ice and pretend they're the, you know, the new Wayne Gretzky, et cetera, in their own mind. And to build that sense of, of complete passionate interest in something that they want to do well. So then if we think about that in a school environment, whether we're talking about whole language versus phonics or whether we're talking about um, students using language to express ideas and to explore their thinking and to engage in debates with other students, et cetera, about things that they care about. And in the mathematics world, the same thing I think is necessary. There are certain times when some students need to be able to practice foundational skills. Because those foundational skills are the stepping stones to being able to play the game, to be able to think analytically about problems and explore certain avenues of solutions and recognize, um, you know, what's going on there and have the, the cognitive capacity to think deeply because you have some basic skills, but you don't do all of one or all of the other. Um, kids need to know that learning has a purpose. It has a purpose to themselves in terms of being able to think through things 
in a more sophisticated way. And that feels good and builds well-being and confidence. But language also has a purpose in allowing you to engage and interact with other people around learning new things. And we have to make sure that we can bring the joy and passion for learning into our classrooms. And the deep learning approaches, I think, do that. I almost uh, think, you know, we were we were onto something with the concept of balanced literacy and balanced numeracy was the idea that there was a there there was a need for both sides, kind of that direct skills instruction and and uh, more of a problem solving and critical thinking type of uh, application. And it seems like we've moved uh, along that continuum with learning and well-being, that it needs to be a balanced uh, approach. And certainly when we we shift into the whole skills agenda, again, even our employers are telling us that kids need to be coming out with both academic skills and technical skills and social emotional skills. They need to have that full palette to be able to be uh, well functioning in the workplace. And, and we know that that's really important for their happiness and well being in life as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I see it as actually a maturation of our thinking as educators. Um, you know, when I think about what my classroom was like when I started teaching in the 70s, um, I, I did things more or less as I had observed them being done around me. And I, I, I kept wanting to reach out to students in my class that I knew I wasn't successful with. Um, but I was, I, I was working in the dark, as it were. Um, I think we started as new research became available about uh, how the brain works, et cetera, we started to be able to use a lot of the social science research of the 70s and 80s into how people learn, et cetera. And by the 90s, I was speaking to groups and saying, you know, we need to stop pretending that we don't know that which we know. In other words, we needed to be able to look at the research about learning and how people might learn better to actually change what we do pedagogically in our classrooms. We worked at that, I think, in the 90s and the 2000s, and we started to recognize um, that there were large groups of students who were disengaged, who were not able to benefit from that. And, and we started to focus increasingly, I think, on the view from the student's perspective, what, what we needed to do in terms of the work on the student's desk um, in order to have students learn more effectively. And we started to become more sophisticated at analyzing their learning. Um, and differentiating how we would work with different groups of kids. Um, I think the natural evolution and maturation of our thinking now as we get into, you know, the brain research that's now the neuroscience that's now out there is we're recognizing that um, something that good teachers knew intuitively perhaps a number of years ago, and that is it's about educating the whole person that we want to prepare kids for a successful future. And in order to do that, we have to pay attention to, um, to, to giving them the opportunity to experience excellence in learning and to build the, the affinity for learning and the ability to manage their own learning going forward. We want to make sure that we include all of, all of our students in that because our world's problems are big enough that we need everyone's brains working on them. Um, and that we can't have any of that if people aren't feeling feeling confident and focused and well within themselves. So I, I think education, as we step into that and add the skills that allow us to say, well, if that's one of my concrete goals, then I have to observe whether I'm being successful. And if I'm not being successful, then I, the teacher, have to change. Um, that that philosophy and mindset uh, gives education, I think, a very bright potential going forward. Well, and certainly a very needed potential uh, based on, you know, what we're seeing with the pandemic and uh, certainly the uh, very uh, horrific situation uh, and events that are happening in the States right now. We're certainly uh, very much in need of education systems that can make sure that all of our students and really all of our students have the skills and the sense of wellness to go forward and, and make this world a better place. Uh, we're certainly seeing the need for this kind of education in, in all of our systems, not just in some uh, fortunate places around the world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, actually, because um, I've seen an example before where a school system has been able to 
exhibit significant leadership in their community. I think we all have. Um, I live in a town that's right on the border with the U.S. And in fact, my office as a director of education looked out over the city of Detroit um, the morning of 9-11. And um, that morning, as we all watched the events unfold with, with, with horror, um, one of the first things I did was send, and this, actually I sent it out on the fax machines because the fax machines were still in our offices and the schools, but they hadn't gone, they hadn't been used in so long that I knew it would get people's attention immediately when that noise started in the back of the office and I was afraid principals would miss the email. But what I asked my principals to do that morning before morning recess was to take a paper around to each of the classrooms in their school and ask their teachers to review our board's diversity messages. Because I was fearful immediately, since we have a large um, Arabic population in the city of Windsor, I was fearful immediately that within our schools, we would see some students being bullied or um, treated differently because of the news events as they happened. So, and we had a very active diversity program in which we uh, had diversity officers volunteered among our teachers in every school in, a, in an active program where we um, reinforced the messages of, of acceptance and celebration of the strength that diversity brings to any group. We asked them in an age-appropriate way with each class to have teachers before kids went out to, to recess and lunchtime to do something that would just do a, a light touch review of that message about we don't blame one group for the actions of individuals and that sort of thing. I know from the data that I got back from our schools that they were able to do that before recess in about 70% of our schools and um, in fact delivered that message before summer or before uh, lunchtime in, in the rest. And we monitored for the next two weeks where there were instances of bullying and put downs. And there were none within the school system itself. The only ones that came up were in the parking lots when parents would pick kids up and make comments about other kids and other families. Um, we know that our kids are capable of changing the world and changing people's attitudes. Um, and so uh, we, need, we need to step up as educators, I think, and be brave enough to take on some pretty big goals in terms of building a better future for our, our, our globe. True enough, and uh, it's certainly um, what I like about the book is that it 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 brings in that topic again. And uh, little did we know, and uh, little did you know, when you and Michael were writing this, that this would be a a theme that all of us are going to have to do a lot of thinking on. Mary Jean, in the book, you talk a lot about um, kind of systems thinking and systems approach, and this idea of multiple levels of um, the education system that have to be in sync. And, you know, when I look back at what we did do in Ontario, that's where we did, when we did our best work, when there was a relationship between uh, the Ministry of Education and the work and the vision that they uh, wanted happening in, in um, Ontario schools, that when directors of the 72 districts got on board with that and were able to interact with that uh, messaging and influence the policy that was happening up at the, up at the, the ministry level, school leaders being connected and coherent messaging happening within the districts and then them helping make sure that within their staffs that everybody was kind of on the same page and I think you did a good job of articulating what that can look like tell us a little bit about the examples that you've seen um, we've talked about Ontario but you've worked in lots of other areas and uh, certainly the book you you speak about Australia and about California as well yeah, when we talk about California, the system's um, inordinately complex in California. There's over a thousand different school districts, um, and there are multiple layers of agencies that overlap in their responsibility for working with the school districts. Um, and, you know, one of the things we know when change begins to happen is that when a challenge comes along, people tend to revert back to the safe behaviors of the past. So it, it's, um, for the most part, governments tend to think in terms of, you know, policy, program, legislation, regulation, uh, financial incentives. Those are their five levers by which they can affect change. 
And as an educator, I realized the problem with that, of course, is that none of those are all that relevant to a teacher in front of the classroom. So somewhere in the middle of this, somebody has to be able to allow the government level and the front lines to talk to each other and to come to the same set of goals and vision. Um, and we've, in our work in California, seen that begin to develop, I think, quite effectively. The state of California, uh, at a state level, changed their funding um, processes. They changed their expectations. And actually, um, a number of the responsibilities for setting the agenda and how people were supposed to teach whatever it was they were wanting them to teach uh, used to be set by the state. And they've now handed that to the district. Um, and it was very good to see that, but it became very difficult for some of the players in the system to not go back to trying to do things the way they used to. So, for instance, at one point in California, um, the state said, well, we want school districts to set the agenda and we want them to connect with their communities and build a stronger communications partnership so they can get communities and parents on board, et cetera, um, and engage their schools. Um, and then the regional offices or the, the county offices of the system uh, for education in California uh, put together requirements for what the school district's plan needed to look like and include. And in the first few years of implementation, school systems districts there were spending an entire year developing a plan that was like 300 pages thick. Um, and the county offices still saw their role as... Um, taking that plan and identifying the problems and gaps with it and sending it back so they could work on it again. So, you know, a year or two down the road, school districts were looking at each other and saying, well, this, this didn't help at all. Like this, we don't see an improved outcome in the students learning. And you know, we looked and said, well, <laughs> it's because nobody's actually working on the learning part of this yet. We're still trying to build a plan. You would call Jennifer in Ontario. We talked about the fact that you're school improvement plan shouldn't be more than five pages. If it is, you're not going to implement it. Um, and that's about focus, right? So California has been learning its way forward, however, the last number of years, and we've seen a shift in that thinking. They've backed away from that level of complexity and plans. The funding was reoriented to actually uh, provide additional funds to the schools and the population of students that needed it the most. Um, which is sort of a given to some of us who've been doing this this way for quite a while. But um, it takes a while, I think, for people to come to that conclusion in some other jurisdictions. So California is moving forward and we're seeing some um, high, higher achieving school districts really start to make progress, particularly uh, around some of the equity goals. But we also know that improving education outcomes is a year over year piece. Um, my work in Australia has been with uh, Victoria and with the Australian Capital Territory. And uh, it's been pretty deep and intense work. I've been a, a critical friend to the Victoria system now since 2017 and spent a lot of time out in their schools as well as working with the um, state government. They um, started out with some absolutely brilliant documents um, and for the most part were taking the right attitudes in my view, in terms of working with their staff and having respect for the work that went on in schools. Um, but you can't make change in a, in a purely top-down. I mean, as I worked with them in Victoria, it became increasingly clear to me that in an effort to... Um, uh, their, their theory of action was that they would make changes at the government level and then they would use the regional offices to communicate these to principals. And after they had sort of the documents in very good shape and the plan in very good shape and principals uh, knew what was going on and were, you know, had their leadership training was in place, then we would start to reach out to the teachers. And of course, the problem with that is that it's a lot of work to get all of those levels aligned and working together if they don't start to see some success in their work with students, um, then teachers and principals begin to back away from it because they don't see the benefit in the work that they're doing. So that actually brought Michael and I in our discussions around how system change works to um, increasingly recognize that um, it's a culture shift in the, in the entire system at all three levels of the system that's required in terms of beliefs and understandings about your own role and your own work. But that also we had to acknowledge that you couldn't do this top down. 
Um, but individual schools who could figure out how to get better didn't seem to have the ability to spread. You know, you would have pilot projects, but they wouldn't go beyond that uh, in a number of jurisdictions. And that, in effect, we had three levels of the system who were each semi-autonomous. And that if we wanted to find a way forward to really improve our work, teaching and learning, um, then we had to find ways to move those three levels of the system along in the same direction. And that would require, first of all, a lot of lateral support within whatever layer you were in, but also um, interaction vertically between the layers as well, so that they could adjust their own courses and actions in response to the needs and the successes and the things that all three layers were learning together. And you saw some of that happening in Ontario, where from a provincial level, we would start some things out, but then we would study what was going on in the schools and we would pull that back in to work on what the nuanced changes were to our next piece. The other thing I think we've realized, at least in our work in, in Australia and California, as well as Ontario back a while ago, um, is that it's a culture change and it requires anyone trying to lead change, whether it's a leadership team in their own school or a, or a district group trying to lead change in their system or at a, at, at a state or provincial level. Um, there's a, you have to be nimble in response to what's going on out there. And, and in order to be nimble and respond and nuance your leadership, as Michael says, you have to be really clear about your own context. Um, in order to be nimble and nuanced in your work as a leader, the communications between and among all of the different people in the change has to be really open, transparent, respectful, and clear. It's a partnership. Mary Jean, in the book, you and Michael bring up this idea of collective efficacy. And, you know, when, when we see things happening right, we see all the levels in the system that are, you know, rowing the boat in the same direction. They have a common language. There's that interaction across the different levels. And there's that lateral capacity building where you have teachers in a school that are working together. You've got uh, principals in multiple schools that are, that are working together and district leaders and then up at the province. I think that concept of collective efficacy is something that when we really see system reform taking place in a positive way, we know that that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you when you see that collective efficacy develop, the progress takes on a life of its own. Um, people, you know, and when we talk about well-being, I mean, when anyone in a system feels that they own the work that they're spending their time on, whether it's a student or a staff member, when they um, can see the impact of what they're doing, they can see that they're getting better at this, or you know, a teacher suddenly realizes that they are incredibly powerful at changing kids' learning trajectories and lifting students up so that so that increasing numbers of students have those aha moments. Um, there's an energy that's generated by that, and you can feel it when you walk into the school. Some of the early research on school cultures, et cetera, talked about the fact that you could identify a good school um, to some degree by by paying careful attention to the relationships, the adult relationships and the adult student relationships within the building. When we think about collective efficacy in a school, you know, you're really talking about a whole group or a system, as you mentioned, a district or right across the province. First of all, you start to, to sense that there are really clear shared expectations for success for every student. So that's coming back to the excellence and equity piece again. And Every person in that system understands that the work they do is a really important link to success for all of those students and teachers across the system. So when teachers understand and can observe and monitor the impact of their teaching on student learning, when district leaders can see the impact of their um, efforts to work with teachers and principals to um, improve practice, 
so that we get high yield teaching in every classroom. You can, you can see the energy that comes along with that. Above all else, it's also about, and notice I kept saying you could see the impact. Well, that means you actually have to have evidence that that improved learning that was your goal is happening. Um, and um, you see it play out in, in school leaders and teachers or district leaders or state leaders working together very differently. And in my view, the other piece that characterizes that kind of collective efficacy in a system is that the system becomes increasingly open to learning. People understand that if I learn better as a leader, then I can help my principals in my system learn better about their leadership skills. And if they are better at their leadership skills, they can help teachers become better at their teaching skills. And all of that translates into changed work experienced by students um, that leads them to a much more successful future and ultimately leads our communities and province to a better future as well. We certainly, we certainly need that right now more than, more than ever. Mary Jean, you've had an interesting career. You've had the opportunity to be an internal change agent in Ontario, and you've also had the opportunity to be an external change agent. What's the difference between those two roles? Um, I should first confess that I'm probably not really all that good at figuring out where the line is between them because I, I become so focused on the learning for students at the end of the day that I'm I can sometimes, I think, overstep my bounds. I will confess to that. Uh, certainly, I've been guilty of that from time to time in the work in Australia where I'm there regularly and the players know me. Um, but the difference, I, I think there are advantages to being the change agent internally and externally. Um, if you're the internal change agent, you know the system deeply and well, and you know the resources that are there. You know the relationships. So it's, it's, it, it's easier to identify the places that you need to work first and to establish priorities. Um, if, in fact, you're listening to the system and their feedback to you, and you have those open lines of communication and the relationships such that you can, you can gather that information and, and use it to um, influence your own work. If you're the external change agent, um, you don't have that same intimacy with what's going on within the context, um, but you do have the bird's eye view. Um, you're able to bring fresh eyes to the situation and to the circumstances and be able to see the patterns in what's happening and, and I think discern next steps or potential next steps uh, in leadership of the reform as you observe. Uh, again, though, uh, the most effective changes, I think, come when there is enough dialogue between that external change agent and the internal one that um, they can probe each other's thinking and be able then to take advantage of both, both sides of it. Certainly, that was uh, something I experienced in working with Michael Fullen um, when we were both in Ontario. He was the external change agent. I was the internal. Um, and it's certainly a part and parcel of our work in California and in Australia. It almost uh, happens at each of the levels of, of uh, education as well. You know, in, in schools, we will have uh, internal agents, and those are the, the staff and the people that work with children every day. And then we have external that come in, whether it's the school superintendent that comes in and has a conversation or instructional coaches. There's all sorts of people, uh, community partners that come in and help us with their work, even at the school level. So at each level well, of the organization, you have that internal and external and where those are working really well together, you can, you can achieve that positive change that you're looking for at, at any unit of the education system. Well, I, absolutely. And it was one of the advantages, I think, of um, a, a model that we started to develop in Ontario when we were working with our school effectiveness framework there that um, we asked schools to self-evaluate in terms of where they were on the, the, the journey of leading improved teach, learning and teaching in their buildings. Um, but then 
once in a while we had districts, we asked districts every so many years to put together an external review team who would come in not to play gotcha um, and find the problems, but rather to be able to provide feedback to a school about their own self-evaluation and whether they see evidence of implementation of the change in their walkabout to student or to um, classrooms and, and in their observations of, of students as they go. Um, the brilliance of that was that we suggested to districts that they include on that review team uh, principals from other schools that early on when we were trying to spread the work among principals and have more principals understand it, we advised that they do these reviews in schools that were very successful and include on the review team some principals who were struggling because it's an opportunity for the members of the review team to learn good things about how you mobilize change and bring that back to their own schools. Um, but um, as the thing went forward, it also then provided once that struggling principal um, felt a little more comfortable and confident of their own leadership for principals of other schools to come and provide them feedback through a review of their school too. That was a formal structure designed to cause lateral conversations among principals about school improvement efforts and what worked and what didn't work in their schools. And it was a, a formal structure designed to do that at the beginning because we didn't see quite the comfort level among principals in talking to each other about these things. Um, and, you know, that's when we talk about that sort of use of a professional learning community approach among teachers inside a school to talk about the work in, say, the grade one to three classrooms, but also at the level of the principals and leadership teams to the schools that there be professional learning community conversations and dialogue, shared problem solving at that level as well, um, because that's how we learn from each other in those circumstances. And in fact, it's our advice that at a district level, people do that as well, um, so that district leaders have a chance to share their challenges and the things they're learning. This is about mobilizing knowledge in structured and unstructured ways across every level of the system. Gets at that whole idea of the the complexity of the work that uh, our staff and our our leaders do in schools and school districts, and you know it really leads back to the title of your book, "The Devils in the Details." And uh, I think we've all seen situations, whether it's at a school level or at a ministry level, where the policy stance sounds good, but when you actually see what's happening on the ground, there's a disconnect. And it's really the ability to, to have the relationships, to make those connections, to have all the pieces in the puzzle, to have the support networks, to help people do this work together, where you see excellence happening in a, at a school level or at a district level or at a, at a, at a country level. Ab absolutely. You know, when we think about the devil is in the details, it really is a a follow-up to Michael's previous book on nuanced leadership. Um, as you say, you can see schools or districts or, or even states that have all of the pieces together and it looks like it should go well in terms of being able to have a powerful impact on student learning. And yet it doesn't quite. It, you know, and, and when you climb inside that and look for where the challenge is, people may have the same documents, they may have a similar approach to curriculum or whatever, but but there's just that that subtle difference in how they see themselves implementing the work. Um, it's why so many of um, some of the sort of sticky insights that uh, Michael's very good at pulling together over time and that we both conclude as we do work that you know, you can say them really easily, but the statement actually takes a lot of unpacking to get at the nuance and the detail within it. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've said to people that I work with in education, we want precision, but not prescription. And they work away at that. In other words, we want precise teaching. We want detailed teaching. What we're talking about there are helping teachers become um, sort of passionate about pursuing deliberate and diagnostic practice in their teaching with kids. And, and yet often you'll go into a school and the principal says, we've really worked on precision in our teaching. And as you go from you know, grade one to one to two to three classrooms, you've got this many minutes of 
literacy instruction and the teachers are all doing the same sort of model lesson each time. And, and there's the creative part of me that just says, oh, I, I've never last teaching in that kind of system. And you can see that the kids are not responding to it as well. Um, so it's, a, it, it's about being really careful about, you know, tweaking what you're doing in response to an honest assessment about what's going on in the kids learning um, and it's that wrapping the system around first of all the need to engage and excite kids about learning but also to be willing to make adjustments regularly in my pedagogy or in my leadership when i have evidence that it's not working there's certainly a, a technical side, so you know, good policies and uh, and good structures in place. But uh, there's equally, or even more so, a human side to improving student learning. And how do we make sure that the relationships are there, the creativity is there, the interactions are there to make sure that those technical policies and and structures, if they're good, they can only work well if the human side is there. Absolutely, and it. It actually, I think, is is the biggest challenge as school systems come back from um, the unexpected closures um, and all of the distance learning that's been going on, is that you bring back together groups of children who are traumatized um, and expect teachers who themselves have experienced trauma over the last while um, into an environment in which often a, a state level will be saying, well, you've got to make up all these losses. Um, and parents are really worried about you know, wanting substantive instruction to be taking place. Um, principals and teachers are desperately worried about keeping the school and keeping children and young people physically safe in terms of not spreading the virus. And, you know, into all of that mix, we want some sort of pressure cooker about um, well, we have to get back to the business of catching up on what students have missed. And I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a formula, a pressure cooker uh, for disaster. And so I think people today have to be really clear about their priorities. And the first is to deal with the safety issues, both physical, but also emotional safety and relationship safety so that you actually rebuild those bonds that people had with each other um, with a light touch actually on the content for the first little bit until we've come back together and we've reestablished the trust etc um, and then you can actually engage people in looking at where we need to go in terms of student learning um, probably in deeper ways than we have before that when those when you reestablish those relationships, if you've been a school or a district that's been focused on improvement and you've had, you know, professional learning groups in place working with each other to solve problems, those structures that used to be the basic structures of reform can now become the building blocks to actually allow you as a school community, I think, to go more deeply into some really creative and innovative learning, the deep learning work. And I think there's a readiness on people's parts to do that, that they don't want to go back to the status quo that was before. They want to build something better as we go forward. And, and that's really what our book uh, has, was about, was um, asking educators to take on that challenge and then providing what we hope is helpful observations and provocation of thinking around how they can do that. I wonder, Mary Jean, if this is our opportunity. You know, there's not many times that you have an opportunity to come back and really do things differently and make whole scale change. And, you know, we've been talking for years about interdisciplinary uh, learning and students having choice and being agents of their own learning, uh, being able to work on real issues that are happening in their communities, in their world. What better chance to just say, this is the way that we're going to be doing learning and to try to figure out what that could look like. I mean, obviously, we don't have the luxury of, of 
of being able to just see this evolve. There will have to be people that will be thinking about what this can look like, but what an opportunity. Um, we've had teachers that have, you know, right around the world, uh, stepped up to the plate to figure out how to maintain relationships with students. Um, in some situations that don't even have access to the technology that many of us are fortunate enough to have, but they've, they've done things differently because we haven't had an option to, to not do things differently. And, and is this our opportunity to really come out of this and say, you know what, our learning is going to look different now. Well, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. We talked earlier about uh, um, collective efficacy in a system. Um, there's a real sense, I think, among educators of collective efficacy and their ability to have learned so many things. Um, you know, you, you, you sort of come alive again when you say, oh, my word, look at what I've accomplished. And I think um, schools and systems would be well to celebrate that in the early days, um, to recognize what powerful learners we are as teachers, as educators ourselves. Um, and and then step into that, well, if we're good at learning new things beyond what we understood we could, then let's seize this opportunity to think about what else we can be doing to move our kids into the more important work. I think the other thing that's happened in this period of history around the planet is that the challenges of rising inequity have become clear and the consequences of it. And um, in, uh, absolutely. Um, and so I think the equity piece is going to be an easier conversation. The problem, of course, is that you can very quickly overload people. They'll come back ready to make some changes. But if we make it too complex and too heavy to start with, um, I think there will be some who will become frightened of it. Um, and so, you know, as I was, I was talking to a, a group of principal and system leaders uh, the other day in a Zoom call, and I said, you know, the, the first thing is, you know, the relationships, the trust, that piece. The second is to build a consensus around some of the things we would like to try to do more of. Um, but I think sometimes people assume the moment you start talking about changes like moving into the, uh, more deeply into the deep learning spaces, they suddenly think it has to be something that they're going to do every day and the thought of it exhausts them. But it's not actually. We can actually, as a staff, say, well, let's try this right now in these parts of our work. Let's put these two areas of the curriculum together and see what we can have kids do. Um, and I don't mean to slow down the progress. But I think if you actually get people to step into it with a piece of it that they feel that they might be able to do, that that starts to build that sense of, wow, look what we did. Well, if we can do that, then we can do this. And it becomes easier for them to move forward together. I'm really hopeful for that stance of looking forward as opposed to looking back. I think the messaging that we as senior leaders, it's really important that we are clear with our, our teachers that we don't expect them to be looking back at what, what learning the students have missed over this period of time. That it's really an acknowledgement that the students have been learning in different ways and in different environments and uh, certainly in more holistic ways than uh, um, than sometimes what they have seen in classrooms and so it's an opportunity for us to say let's look forward what's what's learning going to look like in your classroom what's learning going to look like in our, our our schools and our school system and that you know we all make that commitment to look forward and to to build back better as the the hashtag says Ab Absolutely. Um, one of the stories we tell in the book is about my visit to a kindergarten classroom in London, where the, there was a large pod of sort of four or five kindergarten classrooms working together. And uh, uh, the vignette in the book is called It's All About Trees or Trees or uh, something about trees. Anyway, I visited the school and it was in an older section of London and uh, the city had been cutting all of these beautiful trees down along the street and the kindergarten kids when they came to school were absolutely apoplectic about this. They, um, you know, came into the school and why are they cutting down the trees? And the teacher, being a 
a person who was committed to inquiry learning and following the kids' interests, they all put their little snowsuits on and they were ready to go out and, you know, put their arms around a tree and prevent the city from cutting them down. Mm-hmm. And the kids, of course, found out the trees were sick. You know, <laughs> you ended up with, you know, a kid in the classroom later, a young student saying, well, my grandma's sick. Like, what, what do we, what, what do you mean you're cutting down these trees to keep them from infecting others? Um, at the end of that story, though, the teachers said to me, well, we were so, so frightened as an assistant. You know, we've been talking about trees with the kids now for three months. And every time we try to get them to move on to something else, they have more questions about trees. So they, these teachers said to me, we've known now for the last three weeks that you were coming, Mary Jane, as the assistant deputy minister. So we pulled out the curriculum documents. We were absolutely, we tried to get the kids off of trees and onto some of the normal other things. And we couldn't, the kids' interest kept bringing us back to things about trees. So finally, in desperation, just a few weeks ago, we pulled out the curriculum. This was in February of the year, the expected learning for kindergarten students. And we suddenly realized that every one of our students, and this was in a core area of London where there were lots of children with challenges and, and children living in challenging circumstances. They said, we just suddenly realized that by February, we have pretty well covered or or we have evidence that our children have learned um, about 90% of the learning expectations of the current year in school. And many of them are working well into what would normally be considered a grade one or a grade two level. And you could see evidence in it. I walk into that classroom and these children are explaining to me the difference between coniferous and deciduous trees. They are explaining to me um, you know, as the teacher laughed and said, you know, except for that group over there that suddenly discovered something about a volcano and they were off on volcanoes. <laughs> and I go over to these kids and they're asking me if I know what a fumarole is. Um, and these are four and five-year-olds. So to me, that's such clear evidence that if we look forward and if we think about ways to integrate the learning um, and give give our students an opportunity to take on more challenging things that skilled teachers can pull any of the essential foundational learnings into that piece. And, and the entire class will move forward more quickly than they otherwise would. Mary Jean, that's such a great anecdote uh, to end with because uh, we certainly know that uh, there's lots of evidences, evidence of huge challenges in the world and the kids will have all sorts of uh, opportunities to be able to pick topic areas that they feel very passionate about and to be able to have an integrated approach to their learning and uh, a, a great thing to think of as we move forward. Thanks to Mary Jean for joining our podcast today and for sharing her book, her perspective, and her advice on how to recreate our education systems. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in our podcast with Mary Jean's co-author, Michael Fullen. It's fascinating to hear their two perspectives on their book, the perspective of the academic and the perspective of the practitioner. You can find Michael's podcast on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.